Hello and welcome to Data Radicals. On today's episode, Satyan sits down with Ari Kaplan, head evangelist at Databricks. Ari is a leading influencer in AI, data, and analytics, and has established analytics functions for several Major League Baseball teams. On the side, Ari serves as president of the independent investigation into the fate of Raul Wallenberg, Sweden's humanitarian hero, where he leverages data analytics to find missing POWs. In this episode, Satyan and Ari discuss data analytics in sports, how data intelligence is shifting the landscape, and the concept of Generation AI. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. Successful companies make data-driven decisions at the right time, quickly, by combining the brilliance of their people with the power of their data. See why thousands of business and data leaders embrace Alation at Alation.com. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N.com. Today on Data Radicals, I'm speaking with Ari Kaplan, head of evangelism at Databricks. He's also known as the real Moneyball guy, in which his analytical and scouting experience partly inspired the 2011 movie starring Brad Pitt. Ari created the analytics departments for the Chicago Cubs, the Los Angeles Dodgers, Boo, and the Baltimore (laughs) Orioles. He's also served as the president of the Worldwide Oracle Users Group and has traveled much of the world with McLaren Formula One. Ari, welcome to Data Radicals. Sachin, thank you so much. Love being here. Yeah, I, I had to boo <laughs> the Dodgers because I'm not a big baseball fan, but but as, as sort of a lifetime San Francisco Giants follower, it's a little tough to see their recent signings and acquisitions. So And so switching gears a little bit, you were best known as the Moneyball guy. And obviously there's so much in that movie around sports and analytics and performance measurement that sort of revolutionized not only the sporting industry, but others. Tell us a little bit about that nickname, where it came from, and sort of how you participated in the advent of analytics and sports. Great. Well, that nickname comes from having been one of the early five people working with a sports team in what we would now consider to be data analytics. And so from those five people, now there's tens of thousands of people working directly at teams, vendors, gaming, betting companies. It's actually over a billion dollars for sports analytics, specifically in the U.S. alone. And that Moneyball storyline, that was based partly on a composite, including my own experiences from a technical standpoint. How do teams implement data, engineering, insights, and really helping shift that culture of the whole industry? And Moneyball specifically was the movie and the book on that shift from gut-driven to more of a data-driven decision. And I think what resonates well is that's really applied to every single industry out there. Every person, every business, every company is being affected by the data and analytics revolutions. But at the time, I've got to imagine that when you started it, like five people thinking about being able to empirically measure something that feels like, you know, talent in sports feels like something that people, you know, maybe don't, there wasn't maybe a growth mindset around it. And so I would imagine at the time it was quite revolutionary. Tell us a little bit about the germ of how it evolved. I'll elicit a yay and a boo from you talking about the the Giants and the Dodgers, but it really started when I was an undergraduate at Caltech the California Institute of Technology, and just saw that as a fan, some of the players that I thought had good statistics sometimes would be poor performers in my eyes and vice versa. And a lot of people felt the same way. But in addition to complaining about it, I was able to come up with succinct measurements and metrics to better evaluate 
these players by taking the luck as much as I can out of it and really attributing the skill for like the forecasting techniques. And that caught the attention of a lot of media, the Today Show, LA Times. And at the time, the general manager of the Dodgers, Fred Clare, just heard of me, saw me in the LA Times and picked up the phone, called my dorm room and made a quick introduction saying he thinks that the better ways to evaluate players might potentially help them. And could I come to Dodger Stadium in the coming weeks? And I'm like, I will be there this afternoon before you change your mind. And I drove up there like within the hour and he was very gracious and went from being just a regular fan to sitting in the dugout with Eddie Murray, Oral Hershiser, Kirk Gibson, and many others. So that was really the main entry point. But once I got in, I had to keep redefining everything that I would do every couple of years. So at that point, he was one of the forward-thinking general managers that was humble enough to realize there are potentially better ways to do things and quickly found it was helpful to help recruit better and better players. And I did want to get a yay from you. So you know, along the journey, Hunter Pence was one of the players, not just from an analytical standpoint, but I also have had the honor to be a major league scout to look at him as a person that could adapt, was willing to listen to constructive feedback and change his approach, which is so needed and as a philosophy in life, but especially in Major League Baseball. And for the listeners who don't know him, he ended up being the captain of the San Francisco Giants. But I made help make the call with the Houston Astros to recommend he get calls up to the majors and get his debut. And a lot of people did not believe in that same way, did not think he had Major League potential. What did you see in him that gave you the clue that that was somebody that you thought was worth investing in? Yeah. So there are a couple aspects. One is, do you have the physical ability? Can you consistently hit a uh, major league baseball? And then the mental ability to make that adjustment. And the physical ability, fairly easy to measure. There are ways even back then that you could look at, for example, the, the challenge is he was in the minor leagues. So you don't face the same level of competition of the major leagues. Players aren't quite as skilled in your opposition. So I was able to like filter out just major league quality opponents. How did he fare against them? So would he be able to hit a major league fastball curveball? So that was, you know, simple as it sounds, not easy to do back then when you didn't have the data readily available. And then from the non-standpoint, there's a big question. He, if you haven't seen him, he's kind of like a tall, skinny, they call it lanky player. He didn't appear to have the strength. So a lot of professional scouts did not think he had physically what it takes. But the great thing in, in life, as in sports, is it's not just about strength, which he does have. It's about agility. It's about recognition, about being able to predict where a pitch will be. So we call that athleticism. And I saw that in him as well. But really what won me over is I did do a data science analysis of each subsequent time he saw the same pitcher in the same game or throughout the season. Did he get better or did his opponent get better? And how did that compare to his peers? And it turned out he was in the top just 5% of AAA players that would adjust as a batter against the same pitcher. So that was my recommendation is he was willing to listen. He's willing to adjust. And he did have inherent athletic ability. Yeah, super interesting. I mean, he's such a quirky character too, right? I mean, he's wide-eyed and, you know, grew the beard before that was very fashionable (laughs) and... It was, was somewhat of a character. Rewinding a little bit, though, back to the time that you were at Caltech, at the time, like today, like, you know, if you have a good idea, you can put it up on the internet and somebody might pick it up or, you know, 
more ridiculously something like TikTok or Twitter, but like, you know, at the time there was nothing of the sort. How did they pick up on your idea in the first place? How did they even know that you were doing this work? Yeah, so I did the work as part of my Caltech, it was called a SURF, a Summer Undergraduate Research Fellowship. So I had to go around and try to get funding from Caltech. And then when I did the, the project, I pitched it to the president of Caltech and he liked it. He had me come out to the board of trustees of Caltech and then their PR machine like really liked it. They like, oh, wow, this person, the student's onto something potentially big. He could change a billion dollar industry. So it was really Caltech PR that started it. And then it just caught on its own. And, you know, I had television stations and print, radio, everything kind of wanted to hear the, the storyline. It must have been an insane ride as a 20-something, maybe 19-year-old to, to go on. And this particular, you know, sitting in the dugout with these historic greats. So you did that work, and that obviously carried your career forward for a reasonably long period of time. As you reflect on that, I mean, there's so many data scientists and people today who like obviously have an insight, but tend to be maybe a little bit more introverted. You know, what advice would you give them in terms of your own experience about how to, you know, evangelize their ideas and get out there? Yeah, well, uh, you know, if you're an introvert, you, you likely also have a, an inward passion for what you're doing, whether it's writing code, whether it's finding data science ideas, whether it's the new generative AI, whatever that passion is. If you have it internally, people want to hear that. They want to learn from you. You oftentimes have things to offer other people. So, you know, just getting over and getting out there and, and talking, whether it's your family, your inner circle, and then you try speaking at a, a, a local meetup or try just recording your own video and putting it out there somewhere on social media. And once you get that and you see there's a positive reaction, then, you know, hopefully you're the personality that you catch that spirit and keep it going. And if you already are kind of an evangelist, you know, the recommendation is just building your own brand and constantly be a learner. I personally try to reinvent myself every couple of years and it's something everyone can and should be doing. Yeah, hard to do and obviously commendable that you've done it. You now are at Databricks and you are responsible for evangelism. And, you know, in that context, one of the stories that you talk about, very relevant, is the Texas Rangers. They just so happened to win the World Series. What did they do uniquely different that helped them win the World Series? And do, do, how much of it do you think was due to the analysis of data and, you know, relative to everything else that they did to obviously build the organization and the culture and the staff to win the title? Yeah. So first with my role at Databricks, it's a big honor. If people don't know, we're known as the data and AI company. We've grown to over one and a half billion revenue and a private company still, but the latest round was 43 billion, making us, you know, one of the, I think, fourth largest private tech companies in the world, creating what's called the lake house architecture, which is a paradigm where you can get structured and unstructured data. And this will lead into what the Rangers and, and other companies are doing. But now almost 75% of major companies have adapted this lake house architecture. So I'm personally excited in what I believe will be the next major market, which is the data intelligence platform, how to get intelligent and AI-driven insights on your company's data assets. So Texas Rangers, they um, are one of our more visible customers. We have customers every single industry, you know, 10,000 plus finance, healthcare, and so on. But they were one of 
uh, my favorites. I've uh, been on the Databricks team as part of that. And they did win the World Series for the first time. I love seeing that. It was great for their fans. And by the way, if you Google it, they have a, a lot of videos and blogs and case studies how they did it. But it was really a journey of like enabling their own staff to take data that they collected, data that Major League Baseball collects and shares on like biomechanics and this technology called Hawkeye and synthesizing it and then having a culture in place, whether it's their general manager who comes more from the baseball background or what some of their more analytically driven business people and strategists to make these recommendations. So it's really like a collaboration and a partnership. And with Databricks, think of us as like the underlying plumbing. We enable them to ingest, transform, do data workloads, create predictive analytics. And the other nice thing is the democratization story. So before Databricks, only you know, a subset of their staff was able to access all of their data. And now like even non-technical people have access to it. So like really, you know, all the credit I think would go to like their analyst R&D team, the people who develop those insights off of the uh, data to help make it happen. And Databricks was like the platform that made it lo lower cost, higher performance, and like a collaborative environment. So all different personas can work. And so you've seen a lot of these baseball teams and obviously professional sports organizations. What was it about them that was unique? Like, did they invest in more analysts? Did they apply data to coaching as well as player selection? Are there a few things that they did that were different or did they just do it more relative to their baseball peers? Or how much did the analytics actually matter in the context of this story? Yeah, so I, I should say every single team in, in every sport is building and growing out their data and data analytics department. Some have two, some have five, some have 10, 20, 40 or more. But I think what was the, the winning combination for them was ha having this culture of natural curiosity, this culture where you, you could ask questions, you could challenge people. You're not just doing work, but you could come up with your own proposals for doing your own work. So I think it's really like that data-driven culture that helps set them up for all the success. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And are there patterns that you've seen have worked well for certain teams relative to others or the ones that sort of use it the best? Yeah, and going across all different sports, yeah, it's, it's an interesting challenge. So now every team is asking the same types of questions, getting generally the same source of data, especially at the major league level or the professional level. So it's really, you know, comes down to the talent evaluators, people who could synthesize these insights, merge it with what they see of players as a human. So when you're talking on the, on the baseball and strategy side, people who, who are the players who are willing to learn, and that's getting more and more prevalent and, you know, managers, the people who are implementing it on a game-by-game -game basis. And that has great analogies to all businesses. So if you're a non-sport business and you have that culture to try to improve yourself and innovate your business, whether it's at the data level or supply chain level, you know, these are all great lessons learned from all of this. That's one of the key cores to it. Then from within there, you have public data, but then you also have some of your own proprietary data. And then there's this concept called feature engineering, which is 
taking data you already have and making like new combinations, almost like a business logic expert system. And companies that do that often have better predictions. So in the financial world, one great example is you have price as a column, you have earning as another column. And it took somebody like a little creativity to say, what if we do price per earning? In many cases, that's even a better predictor than either of those data separately. Similarly, in baseball, you can create new combinations of information to get situational data or data that's better in context. So when you run these predictions, like who should we draft? Uh, what is the monetary value of a player? They align better with the complexities of real life. In baseball, and I think in lots of sports, you know, you, I would imagine Gen 1, there, there's sort of progression. And on some level, you know, if you take a calculus as an analogy, there's like kind of the, the first order effects, and then their second order effects, and third derivatives, and fourth. And, you know, so I would imagine that now the competition is there's sort of everybody has the same data on the on the talent side for you know the newest draft prospect that may be coming up and then you know you're starting to watch second order things like how do they learn over time and, and like where do you see this going i mean what's the next evolution of where people are going to start being able to differentiate in prediction so that they're able to get to more high fidelity higher quality differentiation relative to their peers because if everybody's doing it then the question is like now what do you have to do to actually you know stay ahead absolutely great and fundamental question throughout history i started with oracle back you know think database structured data at one point i was the president of the worldwide oracle user group when we acquired java and mysql and others so that was like one evolution kind of got you to scale of hundreds of millions, if not billions of records. And then the next evolution in these insights was unstructured data. How can you take in and synthesize video or spatial data or even real-time streaming? So like in the world of sports, that's biomechanical. How is the sequence of pitching or the seam orientation affecting the physics of a ball moving, which sounds pedantic, but it's crucial to have that movement deceive the batter. It's really, that's what comes down to a lot of winning the game is the deception and how you can vary that movement. So by being able to incorporate unstructured data into your same predictive models and strategy is where we've been like the last decade. And now the next thing is data intelligence. And what data intelligence is, is you're making more intelligent insights. Could be generative AI, for example, building LLMs. So if you're the baseball team and you have 20 scouting reports on a player, it's kind of tough. I've written them. I've read them. You have some, this player is great, but on the other hand, you know, he has lacking this. You just want to know what is the summary sentiment of 20 scouts on a scale of one to 10. So this is like where the next thing is. If you're a manufacturer of an airline and you want to know where in your supply chain are the mechanics breaking down, you want to be able to use this data intelligence to help just say of all of the data that we have, answer this question, where are our supply chain bottlenecks? Or using the real-time streaming, you could say which customers are most likely to churn and why and how. So that's part of data intelligence is kind of the question and answer standpoint. But then also data intelligence is being able to just understand what are your assets telling you. I come at the world from an economics background and you think of this kind of domain of like industrial organization and you think of how 
firms grow. And, and in many cases, you can horizontally integrate or you can sort of vertically integrate. And, you know, in a vertical integration strategy, you're sort of like trying to pull everything together. And, you know, instead of like sort of amassing all of the compute across all of the world, which would be like a very horizontal strategy, like oh, we're doing every workload that we possibly can, you guys are trying to taking a, like a very sort of vertical orientation to the strategy. And then, then there's this question of like, okay, well, how do we then partner with these other people who are sort of along that spectrum of vertical swim lanes? What, what is the advice that you give to your sales reps, your customers about like when to use the vertical platform that you provide the sort of straight through data intelligence platform versus other things, you know, whether it's like an elation or a data robot or, you know, anything else, like how do you navigate that complexity of tools or that complexity of use cases? Sure. Well, well, the, the good news is it's a you know, easy answer since there are so many partners out there that are better together story. Companies that are experts in a certain industry or experts in a certain technology or in a certain capability. And you want this whole ecosystem where it is that better together story. And one thing I you know, was super excited coming into Databricks is I've been at other companies where you have partners on the website, but in the end, it's just a logo and nothing happens. But here, I'm like blown away by you know, the better to get together story truly works. We get so much better value added to the customers when it's partners, not just system integrators or ISVs, but people who offer these capabilities like Alation. And we have dozens and dozens of different examples and you know, every way from pre-data to data to the AI aspect to visualization and semantic layers and security and, and all of that. But really, it's it's like an ecosystem, that phrase, it takes a village to get what you want, to get value out of all of these great data assets. Partners are a wonderful part of that ecosystem. Yeah, often you would like for there to be sort of black and white differentiation between a lot of what happens in a lot of these tools. And to your point, there is quite a bit of overlap. Often what I say to people, even because we also like are building an ecosystem and have things where we have over bits of overlap with partners that we've got. And often what we say is like, oh, well, there's like good, better, best. And like, you know, we are going to provide sort of a good enough experience for in some cases for you to get your work done, but often you might need better or you might need best. And in those cases, that's when you want to fragment off and use something else that maybe is more advanced than what we've provided. And what we're trying to do is really just in our particular case, just maximize the value that comes out of our platform for any given customer or user. And it, it sounds like that's kind of similar to the strategy that you are evangelizing and, you know, maybe that Databricks is taking. Is that, is that a fair summary or did I bastardize it? In any no, way? no, that's great. And just me personally, about a third of my job is helping both enable our partners, but help them like for each individual partner, what is that better together story? What can we take out to the market? Can we do joint customer use cases or joint webinars to explain that? So people out in, you know, who are and customers understand where that value add is. And the result you know, has been tremendous. We get huge amount coming to and from our partners. And we have our data and AI world tour and our summit. And each one is filled with partner exhibits, presentations, dinners, local events. And it's really remarkable to see that whole ecosystem come to life. Yeah. And I think also to get, I mean, customers who can sort of speak to those examples and really sort of say, hey, this is like what I got. Because I think, you know, there's the story and then there's the realization of the story. And, you know, it's funny. I mean, when we talk to partners, one of the things that we always try to do is say, like, look, that's all great. How do you actually do you have evidence of this actually working together? And 
those are really the fulfilling moments that I find um, arbitrate success. I actually want to sort of circle back to baseball, though, or at least sports, mm-hmm. because I think it's such an interesting topic. And to me, one of the interesting things about it is that there's this element of almost a zero-sum game. Like every sports team has, I, I mean, literally, it's one of those places where you know, every, we all talk about differentiation, and we all talk about differentiation based upon analytics, and we pro, like you evangelize that every single day, and you want to get people to buy into the business case. In the sports industry, like if you're not smarter longer term, you're because you're playing on the same set of rules, right? There's not very many, much differentiation. I mean, there is, I guess, big market team, small market team dynamics, and so maybe there's a financial set of differences. But what I think it's almost a petri dish for how useful analytics is. You know, have you ever sort of thought about the meta on that? Like, how do we actually figure out how analytics is affecting this industry at large? Is that something you've ever given thought to? Like, almost even analyzing like which teams do it the best and assessing how much impact it has on their business? Because you really couldn't do that in any other industry. That's an awesome question. And yeah, at one point I created and led the Cubs analytics department. And that was one of the key driving questions is how can we get an advantage? What are other teams doing? Who are the people at these other teams? What are their backgrounds? What uh, type of data might they get? And now a lot of teams, you know, one of the challenges is that There is still a lot of room for innovation, but talent switches teams and sometimes they take that knowledge with them. So really you have just a couple of years of advantage, but yeah, like, and and I was also assistant to the GM of the Baltimore Orioles when we made the playoffs three times, but yeah, a lot of it was like, how can we get either that feature engineer and create new data or get creative? You know, earlier on, like one example, before they had cameras to collect everything to capture where the catcher's glove was being positioned to do what's called framing, which is kind of tricking the umpire to call more strikes than balls, as well as if the glove is here and the pitch keeps coming up here, it's a development tool to help the pitchers better evaluate themselves. So for example, I worked with Kerry Wood. Listeners may not know who he is, but Phnom at 20 years old, he had like a game where he struck out 20 players, which was like a record for the league at the time. And he was getting older. So his brain would say the pitch is going to end up here, but his body was a little bit slower. So it would end up a couple inches higher. And we would you know, have to have interns physically on a screen with a pen touch where the glove was and where his pitch was. That was unique at the time. Now everyone does that. Now it's actually automated with the use of cameras and AI. But that's like one advantage is how can you collect proprietary data? And then how can you detect using data science, like it's called feature importance, which variables are most important? And this will still be 10 years from now, an ongoing race. And when I say 10 years from now is this Hawkeye data which is a a technology Major League Baseball introduced, captures hundreds of times every second, everything that goes on in the field. That only two years ago is at the Major League level, and that's it. Then this past year, they introduced it to AAA, which is Minor League level, and that's it. But to really evaluate what are the skills that start at age 18 when you're in the minors and progress until you're age 25 or 30, uh, how is that aging curve what skills improve, what don't, that's going to take 10 years of data, even if we change nothing else, to be able to make better predictions of player development, finding what skills are are better in the draft, predicting injuries, and so on. So that's part of the competitive advantage is how can we ingest this data? And it's a ton of data, terabytes of data every game, multiply that by dozens and dozens of teams at all levels around the world. 
right now teams are struggling to store it, process it on a daily basis. So teams that could do that faster will be an advantage. People that have that creativity and still being able to potentially even manually find new innovative types of data and see what's actionable. That's where your advantage is. And to your point, you still need an owner that would be willing to spend more money for better players. Tampa Bay Rays is one great example where they were creative and they have a very low budget, but they've been competitive. The Montreal Expos, when I worked with them, they had the smallest payroll in baseball, but the best record in baseball. Since we used a lot of creativity to find players that were injured, that others had given up with, that were good at one point and then went sour, you know, who could we fix? Jake Arrieta, when I was with the Cubs, one of the other examples, we we thought we could fix or change one thing in his approach. And he did and, you know, became an elite pitcher after that. So those are some of the ideas. And, you know, for listeners, if you're not in the baseball world, same idea if you're in retail, CPG, healthcare, it's finding new sources of data, proprietary, non-proprietary, how can you synthesize it? And then how can you start working with the business people to get better and better and better insights? Well, I think the interesting thing about it is it's not so much you have to be a sports fan. My interest in this is actually less as a sports fan. I I am one, but it's not really so much that. I think what's interesting to me is that often what you find is that people have a hesitancy to invest in data, often because they just, it's a speculative investment and you don't really know the counterfactual. It's like, okay, I don't know what would happen if I didn't know what I didn't know. And so I'm just going to keep on doing what I'm going to do. And so there's never a urgency to it. There's always an importance to it. And so when you flip and you look at sports leagues, you've got almost the exact opposite phenomena where it's like, look, there's, you know, 32 teams in the NBA or whatever it is. And if we're not doing it and we're not using it, then we're clearly at a structural disadvantage and it's going to show up in wins and it's going to show up in gate revenues and it's going to show up in TV deals and it's going to show up in players that we can go get. And so that's, to me, it's super interesting because it's almost like a forced march to it. I mean, in some ways, like, you know, there's a little bit more distasteful, but like porn is like this like flagship industry that, you know, propelled the internet forward. And like a lot of the streaming technologies that were developed were developed because of the fact that it was pushing so much of the technical innovation. And I think sports has this really interesting characteristic. And I think it also maybe has the opportunity to teach people about sort of this value that companies get from data. Like it, it can teach you like, oh, now, like if I have to prove the value case, like here's how I might do it because I can look at this analogy. And, you know, I wonder whether there's learnings there. When you think about the general industry, because you you have this role where you've sort of grown up in sports, but now you have to go out and pitch like, hey, buy, invest in this data intelligence platform. Mm-hmm. And it's a lot of money. And so like, how do you use that knowledge to to sort of push people to actually to, to change and evolve and how they do what they do? Yeah. And going back to the money ball, it is a a universal theme. All these points you have are great that it resonates, that you have real-time decisions, multi-million dollar decisions, succeed or fail. You have the themes of teamwork, people collaborating together. You have all data-driven themes versus gut feel themes, which is also very relevant. So everyone could value from these types of insights. But also there's a little inspirational as well. I think when I speak, people do resonate well with me having been in that seat to make recommendations based both on the gut feel and on the data science. Since when it comes down to it, 
every industry, it's people being involved and human behavior and imperfect systems dealing with uncertainty. And even within baseball, it's not just we make a prediction and that's it. It's about risk management as well. We want a player with these characteristics, but what is the risk involved and how do I hedge my bets against that risk? These are like themes of human nature that everyone resonates well. So yeah, I, I love in the evangelism role that I have, being able to tell those stories, you know, personal stories, having been in the hot seat, so to speak, and, you know, just being empathetic to the audience. Yeah, for sure. Maybe switching gears a little bit, you've done some interesting humanitarian work with a person by the name of Raoul Wallenberg. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Because I think it, it obviously, you know, sports is obviously something that captures the imagination, but there's also like really altruistic and somewhat impactful work that you're doing in another domain. Yeah, well, I appreciate you bringing up Raoul Wallenberg. It's a point of my life that I take great honor and, and humble and humility to have been part of. And if you have not heard of Raoul Wallenberg, he was a Swedish diplomat during World War II, during the Holocaust, that was from a, a very wealthy family. I actually just saw his relatives, the Wallenbergs. They're now investing in AI, but the family owned Scanda Bank, Ericsson Phone, Audi, Volvo, oil fields, and so on. So he left what could have been a life of luxury and ended up moving, becoming a, a diplomat in Budapest, Hungary during the Holocaust and risked and actually gave up his life trying to save as many innocent civilians as possible. So it could be a, a whole episode in and of itself. There's been movies and documentaries uh, made on his heroic efforts. He actually led a team of hundreds of people that would issue fake passports or counterfeit visas, setting up safe houses. One of the few people that stop trains transporting people and marches of people through cities to give these fake passports. And then right as the war had ended and the Soviet Union took over, they arrested him and thought he might be a spy or, or a double agent. And after a couple of weeks of interrogation, realized they made a, a grave mistake. And then this is where the interesting part happens in that they claimed he was never in their custody and he basically disappeared to history. So the History Channel made a documentary. It's called one of the two biggest mysteries of the last century, Amelia Earhart and Raoul Wallenberg, what happened to him. So where I jump in is I'm now president of the investigation into the fate of Raoul Wallenberg is to use data evidence, uh, eyewitness accounts, transportation records, cell information of uh, various prisons to find out what happened to him. His you know, family who, who I've been close with, I'm still close with, they need to know, the world needs to know. That it now numbers hundreds of thousands of people of the descendants of people he rescued. Uh, small tri trivia point, Kofi Annan, who won the Nobel Peace Prize and became Secretary General of the UN, Raoul is his uh, uncle-in-law. Um, and so as a result of all of that, I and a handful of other people have been given clearance to go into the Russian archives and make databases of every cell and every eyewitness and trying to reconstruct on a day-by-day -day basis where he might have been. And if people are, are interested to learn more, there's a website, raoulsfate.org, where they, they can learn more. But like one of the, the big things where Russia at one point said he was never in our custody, and then they kept changing their story, that he had a heart attack, 
And then he didn't have a heart attack. He was executed. And then we found interrogations. We have every interrogation at Lafortevo and Lubyanka in the time period that somebody with the same number he was given was interrogated for 16 hours after his supposed death. So you can't interrogate a dead body for 16 hours. And yeah, the work is going on. If people want to donate or get involved or what have you, always appreciated. But, you know, given the current situation in Russia right now, I haven't been back for a couple of years, but, you know, there's a ton of research that still can and will be done and hopeful that the ultimate fate absolutely out there in archives that we are trying to get access to still, we know specific document numbers and case numbers and where these files could be. So once we get that, we think the uh, case will be pretty much closed and the world will know the fate. But it's been a big honor to to be uh, part of this humanitarian opportunity. Yeah. And it's sort of more of a forensics. I mean, you're almost a detective, right? More than you are essentially an analyst. I, I mean, obviously your analytical skills come into play, but you know, getting the these nuggets of information, I mean, you're doing a little bit of archaeology and a lot of like discovery. It's hard work. And I would imagine has required you to acquire a whole bunch of skills that you otherwise didn't have. Yeah. Able to drink Russian guards until three in the morning so we can have conversations. So built up my alcohol tolerance, but, you know, other skills, you know, being able to try to make persuasion, determination, since this is like decades long investigation with some, you know, heads of state and, and ambassadors and presidents, even Pope Francis was on the board of the Raoul Wallenberg Foundation before he became Pope. So a lot of uh, very important people and you need diplomacy, you need to be trusted with confidential information. So the Russians have entrusted that with me, as has the State Department. So if we want access to additional information, you know, it's building up that trust. But determination is probably the, the key thing, since you know, we've been told no We've been told yes a lot, but we've been told no a lot more. It's incredible work. And maybe before we close out, you know, no conversation in 2024 on analytics and data would be real without sort of talking about generative AI. And you referenced it a little bit. And certainly Databricks, as with many other companies, is trying to help people develop and sort of build their own models, use models in order to do the work that they're trying to do. There's, of course, that. And then there's the large public models. And you hear increasingly this kind of world where people are like, you know, we may not be all that far from a real AGI, sort of an artificial intelligence or a true sort of sentientness, if you will, or something that approximates that. How do you think about this world of like private models, public models? I mean, I imagine this is something that people ask you about all the time. How do you think about sort of what role we all need to play, how much literacy people need to have about this topic? Yeah, this is a great topic. And I, I love being a futurist as well, having gone to Caltech and naturally curious, you know, how can we all build a more intelligent tomorrow for the future? And one inspirational thing, having joined Databricks, was we just did a year of world tours. And the theme of the world tour was generation AI. There's generative AI, but generation AI alludes that everyone listening, every company out there, we are all part of this next generation of building really the, the next, yeah, how humanity and how society will all work. The point is that everyone is involved and can and should be involved, every, whether it's ethics, whether it's governance, or whether it's taking things to the next level. So that's like the future part. Something more practical in the short term, there's public, you know, chat GPT, 
that has great purpose for the masses. There's gen AI that can make new music and, and art forms. For businesses, there's that whole gen AI that can take vast amounts of their data and enable people to ask questions or to do that summary. And that what companies are starting to find out is easier said than done. You want to be able to do that where if it's based on your own data, you want to make sure your data that's proprietary, whether it's HIPAA controls or anything else, privacy information does not get out, not just in the data, but not just in the LLMs, but in all the prompt engineerings. You have this concept of RAG or fine tuning, where you could ask a question saying, here, let me give you this set of documents, and I want you to do you know, something with that. And if you use ChatGPT, those documents that you kind of inject into the prompts could get out there in the open. Samsung, everyone uses that example, was one, but it's happened a lot more. So companies, for the business perspective, want to make their own, either fine-tune or make from scratch their own Gen AI, such as LLMs. And then the next paradigm will be kind of like lang chain. How do you chain together multiple, the input of one model is the output of another model, and each smaller specific purpose model might be able to outperform a general, like just one winner-takes-all type of model. So depending on the use case, you're going to get general generative AI, you're going to get specifically trained for different use cases and merge them all together. And yeah, so 2024 absolutely is going to be a, a year of incredible growth in this area, especially among enterprise adoption. Yeah, for sure. Well, Ari, listen, you know, this has been a phenomenal conversation and I appreciate, I mean, just the breadth of knowledge ranging from Raul to the, to sports, to all of the evangelism work you do. So it's been a real fun time and, and a pleasure. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. I'm a big fan of your uh, podcast and looking forward to hearing more from you. And, and this has been great. Thank you. Having been at the forefront of many MLB analytics departments, Ari has leveraged data for player selection, prediction, and strategic planning. His work empowered sports teams to generate insights, develop a competitive edge, and even helped the Texas Rangers win the 2023 World Series. Sports is such an interesting case study for data and analytics because it's a zero-sum game. In economics, the principle of a zero-sum game is where there can be only one winner. If I win, you lose. If my analytics are better than yours, you lose. But a lot of tech and capitalism isn't played as a zero-sum game. Rather, most people play a zero-plus game. In a zero-plus game, there can be multiple winners. The best example is trade. If I have apples and you have oranges, I can trade my apples for your oranges and we're all a little bit better off. And the point to all of this economic theory is that what sports tells us is that since analytics are amazingly impactful in a zero-sum game, literally the difference between winning the World Series and not, they can have so much more potential in a world where insights lead to innovation that can benefit companies and their customers. So whether you work in retail, healthcare, or CPG, data analytics is key to making your business stand out. You're able to find new sources of data, both proprietary and not proprietary, synthesize them, and then work with business folks to get better and better insights. Even with all of the advantages that analytics offer us, though, many organizations are hesitant to invest in data because they don't see an immediate return on investment. We know there's an importance to it, but there's no urgency. Ironically, though, in sports, it's the exact opposite. The use of data is felt immediately in game wins, player selections, and gate revenues. 
So let's all learn from the world of sports and let data evolve the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and thanks to Ari for joining us today. I'm Satyan Sangani, CEO of Alation. Data radicals, keep learning and sharing. Until next time. This podcast is brought to you by Alation. The role of Chief Data Officer, CDO, is more vital and challenging than ever before. Alation offers a vision for building a strong data culture that empowers people to find, use, and trust data. Download the CDO's Toolbox, Seven Tips for Building a Successful and Sustainable Data Culture, a white paper available at alation.com slash CDO dash tools. That's A-L-A-T-I-O-N dot com slash CDO dash tools.